0: Bound. Welcome to Books and Beyond with Bound. I'm Tara Khandelwal. I'm Michelle DeCosta. And in this podcast, we uncover the stories behind some of the best written books of our time. And find out how these books reflect our lives and our society today. So tune in every Wednesday to enter a whole new world with a new author and a new idea. Yes,
1: and after 3 years and 2 million listens, we are back with a power-packed Season 5.
0: With hard-hitting questions and life-changing
1: books. So let's dive in. This episode is part of our brand new series with Jaco Publishing House.
0: Today, we are all set to unpack the deep truths about life hidden within the pages of the Gita with none other than Gopina Chandra Das. He's written a book called The Power of Karma Yoga. And it has made Michelle and me see how we can use ancient wisdom to make our lives more productive. And who doesn't need that? And it has, it has taught us how to select a cause worth dedicating your life to. And some of the questions that I hope that you as a listener will be able to answer by the end of this interview and by the end of reading the book is, how to be purpose-driven, how to choose your purpose, and how to transform yourself into a karma yogi. So let's find that out.
1: So actually, Mr. Das has spent over 18 years in the monastery at ISKCON. Um, So this is situated in South Mumbai, which, uh, you know, um, and also he's been a Vedic life coach and he helps, you know, people improve the quality of their lives. And what is interesting is his background is actually in science and technology. And he uses that knowledge to show us, you know, the Vedas in a scientific light, which is what I found very interesting. And and also as a Catholic, this book for me was like a window into the Gita and the wonderful lessons that it actually provides.
0: So welcome. And I think the first question would be to you is, you know, can you share a little bit about your childhood and what drew you into this? Uh, way of living because, you know, you are an ISKCON monk, but you started off in a very mainstream career. You actually studied in IIT and you call yourself a technocrat. Uh, and that is quite at odds, um, you know, with being a monk and with the kind of life that you're living. So how did that happen?
2: Yeah. First of all, I thank you very much for having me here. So when I saw the list of podcasts uh, that were previously done on this show, and uh, the kind of authors you have invited before, I felt I was a misfit because I'm like kind of a first time author and so yeah, thanks a lot, it's a great honor to be amongst uh, you. Uh, Growing up, I wasn't really particularly spiritual per se, but yes, I had a kind of a spiritual upbringing thanks to my parents and a lot of questions. I went to a a Christian school for that matter. and. I got a lot of background from christianity also what religion is all about and a fair understanding of what hinduism was all about but then circumstantially when i grew up i think it was somewhere in my genes perhaps because my grandfather is apparently a priest was a priest and everyone prior to that all my ancestors were priests so perhaps a little bit of spirituality was in my genes already But then that came to manifest when I started preparing for my Joint Entrance Examination for my GE, which is entrance examination to get into IIT. So at that particular point of time, I was finding it a little difficult to focus on my studies, etc. So that's when I turned to spirituality. That's when I turned to the teachings of the Gita. And uh, yeah, it helped me uh, improve the quality of my life in the sense that I was able to focus better and uh, yeah it helped me get into iit also for that matter so uh, once i got in then i got in touch uh, with the uh, monks in in this particular monk from this particular monastery uh, well-known names like uh, Gorgopaldas, das goranga das like these are kind of they're well-known in social media circles uh So I was inspired. I took my time around four or five me- five years of my journey in IIT. So I was doing my studies. I wouldn't call myself a particularly good student, an exemplary student, because I was like, uh, I was divided between spirituality and uh, technology, so to speak. So I was going through my studies at the same time, contemplating on uh, what my future course of life would be introspecting uh, what kind of life would suit me and then eventually i decided at the end of my five-year course i did both my b and m-tech that was called the dual degree course so at the end of five years i kind of decided that this would be a way of life that would suit me because even my mother i think parents are the best people who are who can judge their children who can take a good appraisal of what their children are good at so when my mom I used to see me practice spirituality when I used to go home during vacations, she used to note that for the first time in your life, you're really putting your heart into something that you're doing. Or else everything that I did was half-hearted. Even when I was studying for my joint entrance examination, it was like half-hearted thing kind of thing. So, uh, when I heard it from my mom, I was kind of doubly convinced that uh, this would be my future course of life and that's how I joined the monastery and uh, I think that's about it and then rest is history as I said. I spent almost now 19 years, 19 years to be precise. I wow. joined in November of 2004. Yeah.
0: That's quite amazing that you know um, you did that considering that you, know, you went to IIT and it's good to know that your mother also supported you. So was there any expectation, you know, from you, from your parents, uh, you know, and when you decided that, oh, I want to sort of, you know, go ahead on this path of spirituality, were they okay with it? Or did they want you to sort of, you know, because I'm sure if I told my parents, uh, you know, I studied economics, and I, if I told my parents, I don't think they'd be okay with it.
2: Yeah. The, uh, obviously, they were upset initially and they tried to talk me out of it when I told them that this is my decision. They were kind of getting uh, a, a sixth. They got their sixth sense, right, parents. They had that intuition that I'm going to take this decision in due course of time. So they were kind of mentally prepared. At the same time, meanwhile, uh, during my five years at IIT, I got my sisters also involved. So my sisters, when I told them my decision, they were much more receptive because they knew exactly what was I doing. And so they kind of helped me convince my parents also. So my sisters played a major role in helping me join and helping my uh, parents get over the shock, so to speak. It wasn't exactly a shock for them because they kind of knew that I was going to join very soon.
1: Yeah, and, and you know what this reminds me also of, sir, of- So in my family, actually, my cousin brother, he's a priest, uh, obviously a Catholic priest. Okay. Uh, but even when he sort of broke this news, you know, to our family, uh, we were actually shocked. We were really shocked, and I remember there were family members who kept asking him, "Oh, what is the reason? What is the real reason?" And he said, "See, the my my goal in life is to help people, and I think this is one path, right?" So I mean, it's it's very interesting how you know you often don't know what's going on in the mind of different people because he was studying management. We all thought, "Okay, he's going, go, you know, he's going to go on work in the corporate field, have a regular life like all of us, have a family." and then suddenly he says no i want to become a priest uh but i can totally relate uh to what you said sir that you know though you were studying uh you know technology but your heart was always you know in spirituality for me it wasn't spirituality but it was literature i always found an excuse to move away from mba from my management lessons and you know like i would say any opportunity to to you know read or or get into the world of books it was it was exactly like that for me sir so i'm very curious you know to know sir what is what sort of do you to explore karma yoga in your books since this is the first book that you've written um and i have always been curious about the term karma because you know like they say karma will come back to bite you um so i what i read about karma is that they say it is the intention so it's not really the action but the intention behind it so could right. you please tell our listeners sir, what is karma and what is karma yoga and why you sort of wanted to start with that
2: yeah so, uh, as you already pointed out, the word karma could uh, refer to different things. Uh, the word karma could refer to the loss of karma and uh, the word karma could refer to good karma. From a very technical perspective, the word karma means good karma. And uh, the kind of activities which is not recommended in the scriptures is called vi karma which is wrong kinds of activities are called v-karma. So another technical uh, understanding of karma is the right kind of activities. And uh, and then karma can also mean plain activity. Any activity can be called karma. And uh, from that perspective, karma yoga, going by that definition, karma yoga means activity with a purpose-driven attitude. Uh, that's how I presented it in the book also. Karma yoga is activity, activities which are purpose-driven. He is not self-centered, correct? Uh, and ideally, a person who's a Karma Yogi on the highest platform has got the entire universe in the center of his life. He's putting the universe in the center of his life rather than putting himself or herself in the center of uh, his or her life. And uh, that is effectively done by putting God in the center of life because God is the source of the entire universe so that in effect uh, kind of summarizes what karma yoga is all about the purpose driven to serve god and that means your purpose driven to serve the entire universe um, every aspect of the creation for that matter so in the modern day world we see that uh, certain people are philanthropists who tend to help the poor and then there are environmentalists who try to upgrade the standard of the environment try to make it more pollution free and things like that so they are uh, catering to a certain section of the problem. But an ideal karma yogi is an environmentalist, is a philanthropist, is uh, every other kind of, you know, other centric person for that matter. is all inclusive because such a person has put God in the center. Now, when I put, when I speak about God, oftentimes people have a very narrow conception of religion. So there are there's politics going on in the name of religion. There are wars going on in the name of religion. And so people, they feel that religion is the cause of problems. If not consciously, subconsciously, a lot of people subscribe to this idea. And so people don't like the concept of God. And so in the modern day world, there is this understanding of uh, spirituality, which is devoid of the concept of God at all. Spirituality, which is about being good. Now, I like that idea, but uh, my understanding of spirituality is, spirituality is incomplete without the concept of God. So, if you have read my book, you will know that I've been very open minded. I quote uh, Mother Teresa, for example, correct? And uh, uh, I call Desmond Doss a karma yogi for that matter, if you have read it closely so yeah so uh, regardless of religion uh, a person can be a karma yogi that goes without saying and why i particularly chose to write on karma yoga in my first book was because oh, from my observation i've been doing a lot of outreach activities uh, from the past uh, many years and uh, people tend to relate to karma yoga better more than any other path of yoga so when it comes to dhana yoga for example they feel yeah there is um, uh, meditation is gaining a lot of traction in today's world i would say but nonetheless uh, people understand that to follow the path of dhyana yoga it's not my cup of tea and uh, bhakti yoga seems to be too kind of sentimental kind of a thing but karma yoga is something that people can connect to because most people of, of in today's day and age they are hardworking. they want to know how to improve their personality how to be more productive at the workplace using the scriptures so i thought a book which addresses their needs um would be an ideal book to start off with how to be a person of this world and be more effective using the teachings of the Bhagavad gita and be a better person at home be a better person at the office At the same time, be more efficient and more productive. So that was the goal of writing this book.
0: I really like the way that the book, you know, it's for everyday people. It's for sort of people like you and like Michelle and I to sort of become better um, and to use sort of, you know, these things that were actually in the Gita. So a lot of the karma yoga principles that you talk about were first put forward in the Gita and how we can use that and become more successful in our lives while thinking about, um, you know, going ahead. So one of the examples that I really liked is the example of sports people and successful sports people, because those are the kind of people, they're almost sort of superhuman, right? They uh, are able to achieve things that sort of, you know, a lay person can never achieve. And you talk about how, you know, they use some of the mindsets that you have outlined in the book, to help them do this. So, can you explain to our listeners a little bit more about those examples and how that relates back to Karma Yoga?
2: Yeah. So, basically, you know, uh, you're telling me to simplify a very complex topic here because the entire book is centered around I start off with uh, one particular uh, thought process and then kind of meander towards Karma Yoga from that perspective. It's a flow. But nonetheless, I will try to answer your question the best possible way here. So basically, I speak uh, about sports people in the context of how a good sportsman learns to be in the moment in the sense that such a person is able to let go of failures and successes with ease. Because if a sportsman or a sports person for that matter hangs on to previous success or previous failure, it becomes very difficult for them to be in the moment. And for a sports person more than anyone else, it's very important to be in the moment. And only then and only then can they be most effective as sports people. And I would say this holds true for all professions that uh, being mindful being in the moment is very useful for all professionals not just sports people but as you rightly pointed out this is extremely important for sports people to be in the moment so that's why right in the introduction i could the uh, example of rafael nadu uh, the the, uh, the tennis champion most people know about him he won i think 23, 22 grand slams, if I'm not wrong, or 23 grand slams, I'm not really sure about it. So how he managed to be in the moment, he explains in his biography. and I kind of uh, borrowed uh, his thought process, and I kind of uh, combined it with the teachings of the Gita and how a karma yogi stays in the moment, uh, how a karma yogi stays in the moment, understanding his or her spiritual identity. Now, a successful sports person somehow has it In his or her genes to live in the moment. And that's how uh, they're able to script their success stories. But the whole point of my book is we can also get there. Not everyone is born mindful. Not everyone has that understanding of how to let go of success or failure and to be in the moment. But how the principles of the Bhagavad Gita and how the principles of karma yoga can helps, help us attain that uh, level uh, to one extent or the other. We may not become a nadal tomorrow by just you know, reading my book or something like that. But at least we know how exactly to reach there, even though we may not be there. And, and I think there's a whole point of any self-help book that uh, we may not have certain traits. We may not be born with certain traits and how to imbibe certain traits into our personality by following certain procedures or certain processes or by adopting certain mindsets. And uh, that was my whole objective of writing this book, uh, The Power of Karma Yoga was how to you know, develop that mindset, which we may not be born with, which we may not be gifted with uh, when we are born, but we can train ourselves to reach there, to become more mindful. So that um, we can be more effective in our life journey, regardless of which profession we are in, and even when it comes to relationships, for that matter. Interestingly, some time ago I was, you know, reading. Uh, I, I read a lot of self-help books, by the way. So I was reading this book on uh, uh, internet addiction. I think it's called Irresistible by Adam Alter. I think you people are more into fiction reading, but I am No,
0: a, I actually love self-help books.
2: Okay. Yeah. So I was reading this book, uh, Irresistible, and there he gives the example. Some study was conducted wherein two people were in a conversation, and uh, in one part of the experiment, both of their mobiles were turned off. Okay. That kept their mobile, you know, it was beyond their reach. And in the second half of the experiment, they had their mobiles with them. They were nonetheless uh, communicating with each other, talking with each other. But in the second half of the experiment was found that their conversation wasn't really intimate you're getting my point because the very fact that you got a mobile phone in your pocket kind of takes away from your attention it sucks your attention even if there is a small kind of a beep on your mobile phone there's a notification that has come so you are in the conversation but the back of your mind you are thinking like hey, what is that uh, notif- notification that I've got? Maybe it's an urgent notification or something like that. So, uh, so the point I'm trying to make here is uh, being mindful is very critical, even when it comes to developing successful relationship, intimate relationship, fulfilling relationship within this world. And when it comes to parenting too, being mindful, being in the moment is such a crucial factor, right? Or else you can't be a good parent and i think a lot of parents are struggling with this in today's world so being in the present being mindful this is inseparable from being a karma yogi and i kind of explain this in the book how the two are connected and so and the extreme example of being in the present one profession where being in the present being mindful is absolutely mandatory is sports so i kind of start off with the sports example so if a, how a, sport, a sports person benefits from, from being mindful, from being in the in the moment, in the present. If you are convinced of the importance of that, uh, then uh, the person will be interested in exploring further, how to be more mindful, how to be more in the present. So that was the whole idea behind introducing the example of sports right in the introduction of the book.
1: So while actually Tara loved uh, the you know anecdotes and the examples of sports people, in fact, I liked the examples of the other People like people in different professions. So one one uh, you know example that stood out to me was uh, Mark Busters, who's the you know hairdresser who was in New York and you know he was doing really well. He was successful, but then when he went back home, you know in the Philippines on a vacation, he realized something is missing, and he actually started offering free haircuts to the orphans uh, near his home. And then when he went back to NYC, he realized there are so many homeless people who do not who can't afford haircuts and then he actually started doing that he felt you know he he basically understood that though i'm a hairdresser the the you know the crux of it is that i want people to be happy i want people to feel good and it was only when he did that he felt good so yeah, i really like that example
0: yeah and it's a good example of how you can mix sort of like you know you don't you can mix your profession with your purpose as well um and i i thought that was also very interesting so the first part of the book you speak about, you know, the you, you give the sports analogy where, uh, you know, you mentioned Nadal and I am really interested in sports people's psychology. And I really like the way that it was framed because you said you have to let go of your ego. You called it the subtle art of letting go, uh, which is it reminds us of another book, you know, book title. And uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, you said that, you know, in the, in, when Nadal is playing a game, he's not thinking I'm a winner or I'm a loser or anything. Because the minute you buy into that identity, I'm a winner or I'm a loser, that is when, you know, you've actually lost the game because you're not really in the moment. And I found that very interesting. And then you go on, you know, with the examples and Michelle spoke about, you go on to say that, you know, one should transition from going from being want driven to purpose driven and again i thought that was a very powerful thing right because uh, you know i'm uh, as i'm also an entrepreneur right so as an entrepreneur you know if i'm thinking about oh what do i if my want is oh i want to make money i'll probably never make money but if my purpose is that oh i want to sort of you know help people uh, create more stories then maybe in that process i would make i would make money also so i thought that was very interesting so could you tell our listeners a little bit more about this You know, going from this want-driven to this purpose-driven philosophy. Um, Yeah. Yeah. So, uh,
2: basically, the whole idea of being want-driven is that uh, you put yourself in the center of your life. So I think uh, there's this chapter about wants and needs there. So, uh, which explains about the difference between the two. Needs are those things which are necessary for us, uh, without which we don't feel comfortable in life. But wants are the things which we turn towards once our needs are fulfilled. So wants are those things which we kind of covet, which we kind of uh, desire, which kind of occupies our mind that wish only I had this wish only I had that. And many times people's activities are driven towards fulfilling those wants. And when that is the case, what effectively happens is uh, you lose the edge you lose the edge in the sense that see the the, the point here is when you are too much engrossed when you're too attached to the fruits of your activities and when you are too much intimately connected with the fruits of your activities you're kind of blinded you're kind of blinded in the sense that that becomes an overwhelming force in your life and you're not able to see the the holistic picture you are you're unable to see that so many other people have to play their roles in order to in order for you to attain your goals it's not that you alone live in an isolated universe right and other people's needs interests and concerns are also at stake so when you are too much uh, focused on your own wants what i want to gain in life it's like but uh, inevitable that you'll step on other pe- other other people's toes and what happens then is you know you end up creating enemies and you won't create a atmosphere congenial for your own success but when you remove the thought from your mind that i want to be i want to achieve something in life and you put a bigger purpose at the very center of your life uh what effectively happens is you get a holistic picture of life you see a life wherein other people also reside and you take into consideration other people's needs, interests, and concerns. So uh, that's why being purpose-driven is extremely important, regardless of who we are. As long, to the extent we are want driven uh, to that extent, uh, our uh, kind of, our progress, in whatever field we might be in, is kind of curtailed. We kind of um, ruin our own progress, I would say.
1: I really, I really like that uh, answer, son. I think you know, for me, it was it was very interesting because it made me think a lot about you know whether I myself am I leading a life which is you know want driven or purpose driven. Because I remember back uh, when I was studying MBA, you know, we did study the Maslow's hierarchy of needs theory and all of that. And you know, as as time goes by, you do eventually get into your own habits. You know, you just you, as they say, take life as it comes. But your book really made me pause and make me think about what I do and. um, Unlike Tara, I don't read a lot of self help, so it was a good, uh, you know, uh, wake up call uh, for me, and it really made me think about, uh, you know, how practical it is in today's world. So because for me, I feel, you know, I've seen, I'm seeing a lot of self help books out there. Right. There are so many. And nowadays, you know, you have um, gurus, you have different monks, you have influencers, you know, on Instagram, different platforms telling, you know, this is the right way to go about life. This is what you should do. This is what you should not do. So I'm really curious to know. So see, in this in this world where there's, you know, a lot of information, you know, everywhere, how do you think we can actually tackle misinformation? What, according to you, will really help people decide and see
0: what
2: really works yeah you're right the spiritual market is huge in today's world i would say like i have a friend uh, who does business of uh, selling masalas so i once asked him very recently i asked him you know how's your business going so his uh, reply was you know it's going okay but i think the best business that is going on in, in the world today is spiritual business. So, you people are doing the maximum business, he said. <laughs> so, yeah, so spiritual gurus are in huge demand in the market right now. So, it's very difficult to understand who is right, who is wrong. So, I would say a good way of filtering out the information is uh, first of all, try to uh, lend a ear, try to understand what they are trying to say. And then there are the scriptures. See, uh, spiritual people from in sanskrit they are called the sadhus and scriptures are called the shastras correct now shastras could be the bible also for that matter it could be the quran for uh, people who are followers of islam so so there are the scriptures which are the shastras and then there are the gurus and then there are the sadhus sadhus in general are people who are who are who profess religion and gurus are are those people who i would call whom we have sufficient trust to actually commit ourselves to their path we kind of decide that okay i'm going to follow uh, the procedures that this person is recommending to improve my life so then you have accepted that person as a guru sadhus are people whom you hear out for the sake of inspiration for the sake of motivation for example, so there are three categories I'm speaking about. One is the shastras, second is the Sadhus and the third is the Gurus. So uh, in today's world, I would say there are two broad categories of people. One category of people are those people who, are, who just follow any Gurus and any Sadhus that they come across. This is bowed down to any Sadhus, any Gurus or any Godmen that they come across. And uh, they just kind of blindly follow them many times. That's one category of people. And there's another category of people who say that, you know, I don't trust any godmen. I don't trust any gurus. I don't trust any sadhus. I don't trust any, any person or any institution that professes religion or spirituality for that matter. I only follow the scriptures or the books which kind of speak about spirituality, which speak about religion. I would say these are two extremes. And people who blindly follow the sadhus and the gurus are generally people who are more or less illiterate, I would say, who are not really thoughtful. Of course, you know, I've come across people who are thoughtful at the same time, who kind of have this a tendency towards blindly following any sadhus or any gurus that they come across. But broadly speaking, in general, people who are less literate, illiterate, or people who are not really into reading so much, they are the people who, people who are less thoughtful. They are the people who blindly follow the sadhus and the gurus, whosoever they come across. And they jump into any process and uh, they want to try out everything, each and everything that they come across. And people who are sharp, shrewd, thoughtful, very intelligent, those are the kind of people who kind of reject Godman, Those are the kind of people who reject the sadhus, who reject the gurus and who want to strictly stick to uh, the scriptures the books, correct? Uh, the, the method that I would recommend is a hybrid of the two. Okay, You study the scriptures, absolutely it is necessary. You study uh, what the scriptures have to say. The Gita is still available. The Bible is still available. The Quran is still available. Read it on your own. At the same time, studying them alone won't be sufficient because for example, the Gita was spoken 5000 years ago and a lot of things spoken that spoken there may not be relatable to you and me in today's world because the world, the external world has changed. The people's mindset, people in general, human behavior is more or less the same even though the externals keep changing, right? So uh, that's why when we simply study the scriptures or the books of religion, it could be the Bible, which is like, you know, 2000 years old or the Bhagavad Gita, which is like 5000 years old now uh, reading that alone won't suffice because because the lifestyle then was very different from the lifestyle of today so we won't be able to relate we won't be able to understand how to adopt those teachings in the current day circumstances so definitely uh, we need people who will guide us on this path of how to apply those teachings in the current context so that's when the sadhus and the gurus come into the picture so that's why I strongly recommend that when it comes to spiritual self help, it has to be a healthy combination of scriptures that have stood the test of time, that are thousands of years old. At the same time, it should be uh, people who are actually teaching the scriptures. That means the sadhus and the gurus. It's just like when you go to any college or a university, right? I remember the first, uh, the first few weeks that I spent at IIT Bombay, every professor that I came across seem to be like a god like so much they drew so much of awe, so much of veneration in the first few weeks but then what happened as you went through your years first year second year then you start gaining more knowledge about your particular field from the books of your particular field the textbooks and the more knowledge you gain about uh, about your field from the textbooks the more you gain knowledge about the professors which professor stands where correct? So then you realize, so this professor somehow, you know, purely through chance, uh, he has gotten into IIT as a professor and this person really deserves to be a professor at IIT. And then you start differentiating. This is a good professor. This is not such a good professor. Correct. So the textbooks helps you uh, gain a proper understanding of uh, which professor stands where. And who helps you understand the
1: textbooks? The professors. Yes, sir. And as you, I think this is a very good example, a very practical example, as you mentioned that, you know, in, in real life also the only way to understand is like, you know, there are, there are texts, there are scriptures, all of that. And the way to sort of understand whether the person teaching it or the person who's, who's preaching uh, sort of follows that or are they like inventing something new. Right. Um, Which is which which is very interesting because makes me think about all those cult leaders who start something new. Right. That's how you sometimes understand what is true, what is fake and what you've done in the book says you've actually quoted the Gita as it is, right? Which, which makes me really curious about, you know, how the book came about in the first place, because we do know that these scriptures were written in another language way back, you know, because they are ancient scriptures. So the Gita was written in Sanskrit, we know the Bible was in the Hebrew, and all of that. So I want to know, you know, how did you sort of make that knowledge that was available in the Gita accessible, uh, you know, for today's audience? And for example, what was your journey getting this book published? What was it writing it since it's the first time you worked on
2: it? Yeah. See, I've been teaching the Gita for quite some time now. And so, uh, naturally, in today's world, if you want to teach the Gita, you have to make it more practical and more understandable, more relatable for people in general. So, that's how I turned to reading books. And that's when I discovered that one of my passions is to read books. So I started reading a lot of books, and uh, I, of course, you know, uh, one of uh, one of a good authors that I came across was Ryan Holiday. So Ryan Holiday, some of the books that he has written is written are uh, obstacles are the way, ego is the enemy, etc. So he kind of combines uh Greek philosophy with the uh, modern self help. So Uh, That was uh, very inspirational to me, that uh, if I come up with something like this, wherein I combine the teachings of the Gita with uh, how people can apply it in their day-to-day life, I I thought it would be well-received. So I would say Ryan Holiday is one of my inspiration when it comes to writing. So uh, he kind of showed me that it's possible, correct? So then what happened was... I was into outreach, and while you're in the middle of outreach, we are out and about, and we're busy all the time. But then there was this uh, COVID pandemic, and the pandemic hit me hard, maybe for good reasons. Ah, uh, so it took me a lot of time to get out of it. As as such, I got a weak body by constitution, and post pandemic, it took me a lot of time to g- regain my strength. And during that period, I couldn't uh, travel much. I couldn't indulge myself in a lot of physical activities so I was kind of cooped up in my room and I was alone and I always had at the back of my mind this particular thought as I explained taking inspiration from Ryan Holiday that I want to write a book which kind of combines the wisdom of the Gita with how to use it in the modern day world so I thought this is a ideal time to explore uh, this this, uh, thought of mine. So I had plenty of time on my hands. So I started exploring more self-help books uh, to understand how to exactly write a book in a self-help style, even though it might be spiritual self-help or you might be bringing in, bringing in even elements of religion into it. Of, of course, I bring in elements of religion into it. The moment you bring in God, it becomes a religious religious book, right? It no longer remains spiritual self-help. But I I felt that I need to be authentic to the original teachings of the Gita. So I couldn't keep uh, God at bay. (laughs) I had to bring God also into the book, naturally speaking. So I read a lot of self-help book to understand, to gain a better understanding of how to go about writing a self-help book. But when I actually started writing it, that's when I realized what a tall task it is to write a book. Now, I have had experiences of writing essays. I've had experience of writing articles. But I never wrote a book because writing a book is a whole different ball game, right? wherein it you you need to be coherent. One chapter needs to connect to other chapters. Each section of the book has to connect to other sections of the book. And the challenge that I faced was fold. On the one hand, I need to be, I needed to be authentic to the original text of the Bhagavad Gita because I was quoting from the Gita. At the same time, I needed to Draw from modern-day examples. At the same time, the flow of the book had to be smooth. So only when I started the task, (laughs) then only uh, and only then did I realize what a, a onerous task it was, in the sense that it was quite a challenge to do all of these things simultaneously. And then I realized then I realized what it means to be an author, right? what authors go through, what writers go through. So my appreciation for authors, my appreciation for writers, you know, kind of uh, increased manifold during my journey, my own journey of writing a book. So then I realized that it was inevitable that if I had to bring in real life examples to make my book more relatable, I have to read biographies. But then uh, uh, I had very less time also on my hands in the sense that I knew the weakness which I was going through wouldn't last very long. So I needed to finish a lot of research before the weakness went away. So so that kind of helped me get out of my own head also in a sense it was very positive because people who have gone through that experience post the pandemic know what it is like. It seems to be endless kind of you start feeling that, you know, I'm never going to come out of it kind of thing. So mine was a very prolonged kind of illness also. So uh, so dovetailing that time period uh, to write a book was like positively utilizing that negative time uh, to achieve something substantial, which could be useful for the world. So I started researching and I thought the best way of researching was to first uh, go through biopics, right? Then uh, I started reading a lot of biographies based on the biopics that I watched. Then I came across, so once you start uh, your reading journey, one book leads to another book, another book, you know it better than me, right? And then I collected a lot of stories. But then the next challenge was to get the right stories to convey the right message. That was a huge challenge. But uh, then uh, serendipity plays a huge role in this. Creativity is a complex process, right? Sometimes you start off with the sensational story and uh, find uh, a teaching from the Gita which connects to it perfectly. And sometimes it is the other way around. You start with the teachings and then you happen to come across a story which connects to that particular teachings perfectly. So creativity is a very complex procedure and I first hand realized how enchanting it is how thrilling it is and how satisfying it is right you know at the end of the day once you're done with it you look back and you say oh that was awesome was it me who wrote that book <laughs> honestly speaking in a sense that uh, you know it's not that you know i would call my book a really great book maybe it's a decent book but the point I'm trying to make is whatever i written, when I look back at it, I feel, you know, wow, was it me who wrote it? Because, uh, because you know, the ups and downs that you go through yeah. while writing it, it's so nice. But I'm sure that once I've written this one book, it becomes much more easier to write more books because you get a lot of experience by writing once. And those experiences, they stay with you and you know how to apply it when you're writing the second book. Yeah. yeah. No,
1: definitely I really like that actually because I can relate to it. Like, you know, as a writer, I think this also ties up with the want-driven word, you know, versus purpose driven. So, so, you know, it's that satisfaction that you get. Of course, it's very selfish, you know, that you say, Oh, I've written a book and, and it's it's an accomplishment all that, but of course the purpose is is larger than that, right? Like you want the the you know the words to help other people. It's it's sort of like a larger purpose than just being the author of, of a particular book. Yes. Yeah.
2: See,
1: hey,
2: we, we I I was uh, I was reading Or, I I came across this talk by Martin Seligman. He is considered to be a pioneer in the field of positive psychology. So, he was was telling about three levels of happiness. One level of happiness is at a level of uh, the body, right? External uh, gratifying the senses. That's how you derive happiness through that. And the next level of happiness is uh, the happiness that you derive through leading a life of engagement wherein you're actually uh, fully absorbed in the work that you're doing, right? wherein your mind and your intelligence is fully occupied in the work that you're doing. That's the second level of happiness. Uh, and, uh, and the third level of happiness is the happiness that you derive by leading a purpose-driven life, which I put across in my book. So by, through writing the book, I experienced two levels of happiness. I would say the happiness derived through being purpose-driven. And the happiness derived uh, through through leading a life of engagement, because while I was writing this book, I was totally immersed in it. Like even while I was eating and I was walking and I was doing other activities at the back of my mind, I was absorbed in the book, what is going to come next and how I'm going to proceed with the next chapter and things like that. So it was a period of intense engagement, intense absorption. So obviously, we are holistic human beings, wherein uh, we can't just settle for a life of purpose alone. We need a certain level of of, uh, pleasure through the senses also. We need engagement for our mind, uh, for our intelligence also. At the same time, we need a purpose also that drives us. So we are holistic human beings who need to derive happiness at all levels, I would say. So the book helped me at all levels, I would say.
0: Yeah, and I'm sure it will help uh, all the readers as well at all three yeah, levels. Yeah, I hope and so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, and I think it is it's it is very gratifying, you know, when you have something that you, um, you're you doing because it's a purpose-driven thing and it engages you you're focused on it and you know it also helps you sort of live in society today right um so i want to ask you you know uh, the last question is that how can a lay person you know a person in sort of like uh mid-class india you know uh with all the pressures of everyday life how can they select a cause that is worth dedicating their life to how do they live a purpose-driven life
2: Oh, It will be a spoiler if I answer this question. (laughs) Because uh, to be very honest with you, uh, the most satisfying part uh, for me personally when I was writing this book was uh, part three of the book, which was a section on In Search of a Worthy Purpose. In Search of a Worthy Purpose. Because I come across a lot of people who are coming from different rungs of society. Some people are coming from, uh, you know, middle class, some from upper middle class, some from the rich, some from the super rich also. And what I found was interacting with all these people, there are certain observations that I made, certain challenges that human beings go through is across the board. It's like it's not limited to a particular class of society. So a person belonging to a middle class or a lower middle class or a lower class of society might imagine that a person belonging to upper class of society is leading a great life. But no, yes, at a certain level, yes, they've got much more pleasures for their senses. But when it comes to especially the question of a purpose in life, the challenges that people at all rungs of society face are common is the same. Everybody has faces this challenge of which is a worthy purpose dedicating our life to. I've seen this uh, play out with people. Uh, At the level of uh, lower class, middle class, upper middle class, at every level, people have the same challenge, which is the purpose which I I need to dedicate my life to, because deep down, everybody knows it, whether you read a self help book or not. As human beings, uh, at one point of time, maybe you know, once you cross your 30s, 35, once you enter your middle age, especially, slowly but surely that urge to become purpose driven grows in you. And, and I've seen it you know, uh, in people that I come across and uh, different people choose different purposes. And when they choose different purposes, they face different challenges. And for me, I'm uh, seeing it all from a vantage uh, perspective because I meet a lot of people because I am into outreach. So I, uh, uh, people from different ranks of society in my classes, so i can relate to their challenges so i could see what are the challenges what are the questions that come to their mind when they are out to search for a purpose so i thought you know why not make a section out of it in search of a worthy purpose right uh, wherein i deal in uh, deal with uh, the question of uh, suppose you choose this particular purpose what are the challenges that you are going to face if you choose that particular purpose what are the challenges that you're going to face. So I kind of build my narrative around that and kind of come to the ultimate climax of this is the ultimate purpose worth dedicating your life to. And I would I would suggest that let the reader discover that for themselves while reading the book because or else my entire endeavor of you know, making that smooth narrative in section three in part three of the book will go waste. So uh, I would leave it for the reader to discourage for themselves What's a holistic purpose were dedicating their lives to. And I'm sure that when they're going through this particular section of the book, they'll be able to see themselves in these pages somewhere. They'll be able to relate. Oh, yeah, this is similar to my life's journey. And these are the challenges that I am going through. I- I've tried my best to make it as relatable as possible. Uh, to any layman, uh, regardless of which rung of society they come from. Uh, I would say, even uh, it's recommended even for monks, because even living in the monastery, it's very easy to lose track of your purpose. And it's very important to keep reminding yourself of why you are here in the first place. And uh, unless you keep reminding yourself of the purpose, uh, life becomes hollow in due course of time, and you feel a void from within. and uh, you know and that kind of plays out on your health sometimes sometimes it plays out in terms of mental illness which is a growing problem in the modern day world so one day i was thinking you know so i asked one of my seniors in the monastery a senior monk you know who is going to read my book you know i put in so much of effort into it will it be of any use to anybody so he gave me a profound answer that even if it helps one person your book is a success and uh, I think it's going to help at least one person that I'm damn sure about. So yeah. So uh, I think, uh, thanks. Uh, thanks for your time. You have been very gracious host <laughs> and you made me feel very much comfortable and at home. I think that's your, uh, what do you call it? What do you call it in, uh, in, uh, in terms of the corporate culture you call it? unique uh, selling
1: uh, Position,
2: yes usp usp yes. that's your usp you <laughs> thank, make, uh, <laughs> thank you, <laughs> you are thank you most so very much. comfortable you put them at ease so that they can speak from the heart mm-hmm. so i've tried my best i, I hope you know got yeah. less work oh, it's on- our
1: pleasure so and you. i was just yeah. going to add that yeah it is a you know journey of self discovery so every reader who comes to the book will have a different uh, interpretation will have a very different output than you might have envisioned so that's what i like I liked about the book, you know, though, you know, Tara and I agreed on a lot of things. I'm very sure we had our own takeaways. uh, So so, to wrap up this interview, sir, we have a very short, uh, you know, quiz round, which is our fun quiz. And then we have the rapid fire. So I'll be giving you options. You have to pick one and no thinking is allowed. Okay. As, as rapid as possible. Okay. One action that you return to, to relieve stress. A. Laughter. B. Prayer. C. Talking to others. Prayer. Okay. One aspect of South Mumbai which makes it very peaceful. A. The sea. B. The birds. C. The traffic.
2: The sea, of course.
1: <laughs> yes. Okay. One gesture which always melts your heart. A. A child's smile. B. A kind deed. C. A unique gift. A child's smile. Okay. One language that you are very close to. A. Sanskrit. B. Hindi. C. English. English. Okay. Okay. So that brings us to the end of the fun quiz. And now we have a very short rapid fire round. Again, you can answer in one word or one line. Hmm. Okay. One destination that you would want to visit for how peaceful it is. The Himalayas. One yoga
0: practice you never tire of.
2: Mantra meditation.
0: One thing that you love about your life in ISKCON.
2: The association.
0: One habit that you wish children today could cultivate from the lessons of the Gita.
2: Meditation. Okay.
0: The last question is, what's next?
2: Jnana Yoga.
0: What's the next book you're writing?
2: Yeah. Jnana Yoga.
0: Yeah. So I've covered Karma Yoga
2: here. Karma Yoga is like the summary study of the first six chapters, roughly Mm -hmm. speaking. I've exclusively focused on the chapters two to five here. Two to five,
1: yeah.
2: Yeah. But uh, then... I would like to next focus on Jnana Yoga, which is the last six chapters of the Gita, which is from chapter 13 to 18. That's the what next does project. that cover? Uh, that covers Jnana Yoga, which is it's very interesting, I would say. Uh, why? Because you, need, you see, there are a lot of self help books coming in the market. And uh, one thing that I discovered while reading the self help books is they define the problems really well. Okay. And sometimes the solutions that they recommend, they fall a little short of a complete solution from my perspective. And sometimes they seem to be complete and you get that feeling, you get that aha moment that, yes, I found a solution for a major problem that I'm going through. And then you start implementing the solution also. And then in due course of time, you start finding that your implementation is tapering off in the sense that the book hasn't had as much impact as you imagined when you first read it correct so i'm going to address this issue in my next book that how to make our psychophysical state more receptive to self-help so oh. one one thing is the information is there the know-hows are there out there the information is there but to implement it is a whole different ball game so how no, to make please. your psychophysical nature receptive for it
0: i think that's a problem we all face i think i yeah. like reading self-help yeah. books and then it's the exact same thing you know that it just sort of you to implement it after a certain point of time is very difficult. So looking forward to reading that book as well and uh, really happy that this book is doing well. And it definitely has touched, you know, two lives, at least uh, (laughs) our lives (laughs) Um, and made us think, you know, about how we can find our purpose more and how we can find, we can live uh, a purpose-driven life and how we can let go Um, to achieve success. So thank you so much. So here we are. We're at the end of yet another journey into the many worlds of books and beyond with Bound. I'm Tara Khandelwal. I'm Michelle DeCosta. And this podcast is created by Bound, a company that helps you grow
1: through stories. Find us at Bound India on all social media platforms.
0: So tune in every Wednesday if you live, eat and breathe books. And join us as we discover more revolutionary books and peek into the lives and minds of some truly brilliant authors from India and South Asia.
1: And don't forget to keep your love for stories alive for books and beyond.